This episode involves discussion of medical and mental health issues. I cannot stress enough that I am not a doctor, and my opinions on the matters discussed are strictly limited to the situation at hand and should not be broadly applied. Like ever. Episode 5 I'm sure by this point you're probably wondering, what the heck is going on here? I can promise you, there were a lot of points where I was wondering the same thing. From inconsistent medical concerns to strange hang-ups, there was a lot going on in this situation that gave me pause. But like I've said before, I'm not a doctor. My Google MD is barely worth the paper it's printed on. And no, I'm not silly enough to have printed myself a fake degree, but I might make them for PayPal supporters if you ask nicely. So much of the situation with John seemed fishy, but in a way that didn't really negatively impact me. If John was trying to get something from me, he wasn't really succeeding. I wasn't any more friendly toward him than anyone else in the community. He didn't have any real special access to my family, unless you consider phone calls with Luis and I to be special, but honestly, we talk so much with so many people in our community over Discord that it doesn't really stand out much to either of us. So let's talk about what we know for sure and speculate about what we don't. I'm Katie Ruvalcaba, and this is Parasocial Anxiety. A word of caution. This is the second to last episode in this story. So if you're listening right now and really enjoying the storytelling, and you have a strange story that you think people would like to hear, make sure you reach out to me at psanxietypod on Twitter or Instagram. I'd love to say that I'm interesting enough to have multiple super weird stories to tell you from my own life, but I'm sad to say this is it for me. Though There are a few people from my Twitch community who have offered to stalk me just so that the podcast has content. So that's nice of them. Okay. Here's what I knew about John for sure. I knew John's address. He for sure lives in the UK. His accent is not the type that you'd easily mimic if you were just wanting to pretend to be English. I heard his voice, and it never gave any of the normal signs of being run through a voice changer. And like I'd said in an earlier episode, some of the affected qualities of his voice, like the sleepiness or the slowness, would wear off as a conversation wore on. So if they were computer-generated, that wouldn't have happened. That sort of distortion would have remained constant. Not to mention, I had mailed him things that he was able to show me photos of, including a mug that I had made with the cricket he sent me. So it was a -a one-of-a-kind item. It's not like he could have bought it in a shop. The address he gave me was a house, it was not a business, and it was purchased on a date that corresponded with his Twitch handle, so it seemed like a significant year for him. I knew John was taking some medications that had been sent to him by the NHS. He would send me photos of his medications often, almost always without any context that would make it a reasonable thing to send, sort of out of left field. Here's a shot of a bunch of pills I'm about to take. But I've said before, my mom's a nurse, so I know enough about medications to know that you can just Google the shape, color, and impressions on a pill to find out what they are. John only ever showed me three types of prescription medication. A benzodiazepine anxiety medication, so think like Xanax. A stool softener. And a fentanyl pain patch. Now two of those medications are highly addictive and cause sleep disturbances. And I know they were his because his name was printed on the prescription bottles or the labels. 
John was always awake at hours that wouldn't be standard for a person in the UK. He usually wanted to talk to us after our kids had gone to bed so that we could talk to him without interruption. He indicated he needed the conversations to be quiet because of his headaches. He said those were constant. That meant that we were talking to him at around 9 or 10 p.m. Eastern time. That would be 2 o'clock in the morning, UK time. John was always listening to Spotify. His Spotify account was linked to his Discord, and you can see what program someone has open if they have Discord open at the same time. Like, if I'm playing a game on Steam, people in my Discord will say, hey, you're playing Clue without me? And then they'll come join me. Hopefully. John's screen name always said, listening to Spotify. That's it. That's 100% of the things that I can say for sure about John. From here on out, you'll be getting my educated guesses about John. Because nothing is really for sure. Like I said, this is a parasocial relationship. I didn't actually know this guy like I thought I did. And before we get into the big incident that concludes this story, I want you to know where my head was at with regard to who John was and what was going on here. So let's start with the obvious, right? Was John sick? I don't know. I really, really don't. I've spoken with a lot of medical professionals since this whole thing, and most of them have told me it would be nearly impossible to believe that a person with MS was treated for one week with chemotherapy before being told they were dying. Although it's possible for MS to cause lesions, it's not common for non-cancerous lesions to be treated with chemo. And MS is most often, you know, as Jed Bartlett taught us, relapsing and remitting. So patients will have times where their MS is more of a problem than others. And during an attack of MS, it's most common that they're treated with a drug that's an intravenous drug called interferon. If you want any more information than that, I'm afraid you're going to have to talk to a doctor because that's where my knowledge ends. The symptoms John was describing are not common to MS, and MS is not a fatal disease. People with MS can live very full and fruitful lives. They parent children, they have jobs, all that. What's pretty much guaranteed was that John was suffering from some mental health concerns, probably depression, owing to the way that he would speak to me and to Luis. And he was being medicated for anxiety, though the medication he was using is not really meant to be used long-term. As I mentioned before, it's highly habit-forming. Now, this is not to say that a person suffering from depression and anxiety shouldn't take their prescribed medications out of risk of addiction. Anxiety is a very real mental health problem, and if you're following your doctor's directions and reporting your side effects accurately, you should not have any concern regarding taking your prescribed medications. But when it comes to John, I get the feeling that some of his medications may have been being abused. Once during the summer, Luis had accidentally FaceTimed John, and John answered, but he quickly hung up. So we saw his face. We could compare it to the photos of him that we had seen posted online, like his profile pictures. It was the same guy. But what struck Luis and I both as odd was that although Brooke described him as being on a feeding tube with consistent, unrelenting, loose stools, he didn't appear to have lost any weight from the photos that we had seen from him in years prior. John was a heavyish guy. If he had gone for six-plus months of having minimal nutrient absorption— it would stand to reason that he would be visibly thinner. But that's not the case. Actually, he also didn't have a feeding tube. The whole feeding tube thing was really out of character for MS as well. Though I did find data to support that one-third of MS patients will have a gastronomy tube placed, 
everything that I found was that this was supposed to be a tube placed in the abdomen, not through the nose like John's tube was supposed to be. This was one of those things that used to bother the heck out of me. Brooke would describe John as having seizures and then he would pull out his NG tube, but never did anyone think to do an abdominal tube? That seems extremely unlikely to me. What I do know is John seems to have a fascination with illness. Most of his Instagram follows at the time were people with chronic illnesses, people in wheelchairs, that kind of thing. At one point, Brooke had told me that she was following a YouTuber, Jim Hubbard, who was on YouTube as Wheels No Heels. Actually, Brooke began to talk about her around the time that she found herself paralyzed from the waist down. Now, it's for sure that people who find themselves with a bodily difference or illness of some sort, they're likely to reach out to find resources on those differences. Like when I found out Mary would be born with a limb difference, I checked out all sorts of creators from the Lucky Finn community. That type of thing is 100% normal. But combined with the number of people that Brooke and John follow who just had so many various kinds of illnesses, and the fact that Brooke's illness just simply couldn't be accounted for, it seemed more to me that Brooke and John suffered from what is now called factitious disorder imposed on self. It used to be called Munchausen syndrome, but it was named after a fictional character, so it's not commonly called that anymore. Most people are familiar with factitious disorder imposed on another, which was formerly called Munchausen by proxy. Because of movies and TV shows like The Sixth Sense, like there were mothers that would poison their children for attention. I'm just going to read you the definition Wikipedia gives for factitious disorder imposed on self. It's a, quote, factitious disorder in which those affected feign and in, or induce illness, injury, abuse, or psychological trauma to draw attention, sympathy, or reassurance to themselves. This makes the most sense to me to explain both John and Brooke's strange behaviors and strange symptoms. It also explains why John was supposed to have died of his illness just before Christmas of 2021, and from what I can tell, is still alive to this day. We'll talk about that in the last episode. So that brings us to the next obvious question. Is Brooke real? (laughs) A lot of you have texted me saying, this is a catfish, right? Brooke isn't real. To this, I would say I can't be 100% sure, but 99.99% no, Brooke isn't real. (laughs) Aside from the fact that Brooke and John both appeared to have some of the most intense and varying medical bad luck in the whole world, they had a lot more things in common that simply can't be explained any other way. First, there was the PayPal. John obviously didn't like having to input a credit card number in order to donate as Brooke. So he created a reason why Brooke would be donating using his. She would simply connect her credit card to his PayPal account. So his name would be on them, but the donations would be from her. That was unlikely from the beginning. Remember, I was concerned at first that she was stealing from John. But afterwards, I was able to check some things related to those donations. A donation goes through two different carriers. I've told you about PayPal, which connects a name to the donation unless it's done without logging into an account. But there's also the stream software that I use, which allows the donation to show up on my stream. Most of the time when a person is donating to me as a streamer, they're using a link that shows up on my streams page, which runs through the donation through Streamlabs, my software. And probably unknown to most people who donate, even if you don't put your name in, Streamlabs records this Twitch account that is logged in at the time of the donation. So when Brooke was sending donations, about every other time the text would read, from Brooke, but John's Twitch name was signed in. And that didn't make a lot of sense because Brooke had created her own account and was supposed to be chatting from her home PC. 
Next was the Discord. That wasn't really an issue to me at first. Using someone else's Discord isn't super strange in that situation. A few years ago, in the beginning of 2020, I had a person from my community die. Her Twitch name was Spoonie Pants. A little plaque honoring her hangs up in my kitchen all the time. I forget what illness she had, but she was an awesome person. She liked to make her own lotions and soaps, and she once made a jar of body butter for me and my friend Emily, who used to stream with me sometimes. It was one of the last jars that she made before her body wouldn't allow her anymore. She wrote me a note with it that was typed, and she'd written at the bottom, sorry for the typed note, but my handwriting has gotten so bad now. And when I saw her in stream, I told her that the writing on the bottom of the page looked lovely and she was being hard on herself. She told me that her boyfriend had written it. Right as everything was shutting down from COVID, Spoonie was told that she was almost out of time. She and her boyfriend drove to Florida, one of the few places where municipal buildings were still open, and they got married at the Justice of the Peace down there. She shared the video with us, and we all watched together on stream as a community. Spoonie looked so small and frail in her wheelchair, and even though she was masked, you could tell how happy she was to be marrying her boyfriend. When she died, he messaged me under her name to tell me she'd gone. I'd spoken with him a few times under her name, but as you can imagine, when your wife dies, you don't necessarily want to relive it over and over with her online friends. And he gradually left the community. Honestly, if he hears about this and comes in to say hi, I'll be delighted. But that's the frame of reference that I had for a person who was dying. It's not weird for uh, people who love them to know that they're part of an online community and to use their screen name to reach out to that community. So at first, when Brooke was speaking to me in John's name, it wasn't weird. But after John gave me his phone number and would text message me, and Brooke gave me her separate number and would text me, it seemed less and less reasonable that she'd be using his Discord name. Next was the address. Brooke's address started out different than John's. You might remember me saying that Brooke was buying a house. Well, actually, she was building a house. But then after she was paralyzed, she decided it would make more sense for her to simply buy John's house. So in her mythology, she bought John's house at some point in 2021 and told me that I could mail her things at his address now. She also described in great detail how she was redoing the bathroom in the multi-story house to help her get on and off the potty since she was in a wheelchair now. She was going down the stairs on her butt, and apparently she was able to go back up the stairs on her butt and had wheelchairs on both floors. I don't know, but aside from the fact that John's address is now Brooke's address being super convenient, it seemed a little nonsensical that a person in a wheelchair would buy a house that was mostly inaccessible to them. Also, have you ever known anyone to move house without mentioning it to people in their lives? How awful it is to pack, or how inconvenient it is to have to find someone with a truck or rent one. Brooke was moved in overnight with basically no mention of the hassle of moving. That would be weird enough on its own, but she's supposed to be in a wheelchair. Certainly that would present some sort of problems that would warrant some kind of comment. But nope. Just moved in. Now remodeling a bathroom. It only makes sense if the move is only happening in your head. Then there's the name change. A few of you caught this uh, from episode two, and you messaged me. (laughs) Great detective work. Actually, you should go back and listen and uh, let me know if you find any more of these things, because I left them all in there so that you could find them. But the first time that John mentioned his friend who was coming to sit with him in the hospital, the friend who lived just around the corner from him. One of my best friend Chloe is coming round when she finishes work to stay with me for bit as Chloe just live in the next road to me. Her name was Chloe. 
Later, when Brooke came on the scene, she lived just around the corner from him. In the story that I was told, Brooke was friends with Chloe. They had actually gone in on the Peloton together, and Chloe still comes over to Brooke's house to use it. But once I asked Brooke if her friend Chloe was friends with John, and she said no. They had met, but they didn't really know each other well, so Chloe didn't go spend time with John to give Brooke time to rest. Remember, Brooke was adamant that she was John's sole caretaker. The nurses weren't even changing his diapers. She was. Even after she was paralyzed, actually. So, anyway. Brooke was originally called Chloe in the fantasy that I was being given. Now, I hesitate to mention the phone numbers thing because it starts to get a little overly complicated, but try to stick with me. Originally, I just had John's number, and it was saved in my phone. But when Brooke started to get sick, there was a point where I got a text from a UK phone number that I didn't know, claiming to be Brooke's mom, keeping me informed of Brooke's situation. I didn't save that number because why would I? I didn't think it was appropriate for me to be texting Brooke's mom. But later that day, I got a text from another UK number saying that this was Brooke. She was out of surgery and all was well. So I saved that number in my phone as Brooke. Later, a couple days, I texted Brooke's number and I didn't hear back from her. Given how quickly she returned texts and how upset she seemed to get if I didn't text her quickly, I was a little concerned. And I reached out to John on the number that I had for him. He said that he would have Brooke text me back to let me know she's okay. Less than two minutes later, in comes a text from an unsaved UK number. But I don't delete my texts very often, so at the top of that message was the text from Brooke's mom saying that she'd keep me updated on Brooke's situation. But now here it was texting me as Brooke. I have to assume that these were burner phones or some other kind of number hiding software, and John just didn't keep clean records of whose fake number was whose. Some people have asked if I thought John had tracked down my address before I gave it to UPS. And honestly, I don't think so. I don't think that John was any sort of devious criminal. He didn't have great attention to detail. There were also times when John appeared to have very little understanding of what size Brooke was supposed to be. Once Brooke had posted a photo of herself in the Discord wearing a party dress. It was deleted soon after, which at the time didn't seem strange to me. Most of the people from the UK are a little more guarded with that kind of thing. It's uncommon for most of them to post photos of themselves, and when they do, they quickly delete them. But that photo didn't really match the photo on Brooke's Peloton account. Though, on Peloton, she was wearing glasses, so maybe that was like her cozy outfit. But in both pictures, the woman depicted was a small woman, about my size, and I'm five foot three, 130 pounds. So I'm not a big lady either. But John would send photos of receipts for clothes that he had bought Brooke to help her dress easily once she was paralyzed. Oddly, these were the exact same clothes that Louise had gotten me for Christmas from the Peloton store. And for the record, workout leggings are not easy to dress in for people with the use of all of their limbs, much less people without that use. But the receipts showed clothes in very large sizes. He seemed to notice this eventually and told me that he had had to return them but I thought it was especially odd that he was buying the same clothes as me in sizes that were probably not large enough to fit him, but were certainly not small enough to fit what Brooke was supposed to be. One of the last things John sent me was a brand new Apple Watch. I had made a comment on stream that my old Series 3 Apple Watch was supposed to link to my bike. And by the way, I've got to stop saying the word Peloton on this stream until they sponsor me, darn it. But it was being fussy whenever I tried to connect it, so he sent me what was the newest model at the time, a Series 7. 
He said it was the exact same one he'd purchased for Brooke. And anyone who saw me wearing that on stream can tell you, it looked silly on me. It was a 44 millimeter watch. So on my tiny wrist, it looked like I was wearing an iPad as a watch. There's no way that he would have seen this on Brooke and still thought, oh yeah, that's the right size. Lastly, and basically the most compelling thing to me was the way that they type. A few of you have messaged me to ask, was John speaking English as a first language or what's up with the broken English? In speaking to John over the phone, I can tell you that he certainly spoke English fluently and I have no reason to believe that it wasn't his native language. But if you're at all familiar with Essex, it's like the Jersey Shore. There's actually an English version of the Jersey Shore TV show called The Only Way is Essex. Whether it's fair or not, the accent immediately gives the perception that the speaker might be wearing cheetah print and or hot pink feathers. And I say this as a person born in New Jersey who likes a splash of cheetah print here and there. Much like you can't really picture Polly D giving a lecture on thermodynamics, the Essex, Essex accent does not exactly drip with academic confidence. Couple that with the fact that I believe John and Brooke both largely compose their text with talk to text. So poor Siri is over here trying to decode that accent and transcribe it. Either way, both John and Brooke had a distinct writing style that would be very hard to fake. They also both had a tendency to repeat the same things over and over. How will you feel when I'm gone? Do you have any friends as generous as John? I feel so bad. Those phrases were reused almost in every conversation that we had, like more than once per conversation. Almost like that viewer who kept coming in and asking the same word choice over and over if I was pregnant. Almost robotically. But most distinctly, they use my name in almost every single text message they sent. Katie, how are you feeling today? No, 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 Katie. Katie, I need you to text me back immediately. Think back on your last 100 text messages. How many times would you say you used the first name of the person you were texting? It's a direct message, after all. You don't really need to outline who you're addressing. I have plenty of English friends. This isn't an English thing. It was a John thing. And a Brooke thing. All of this sort of trickled in little by little. You have the benefit of hearing it all condensed together, so it's obviously strange to you. But when I was living it, I wasn't actively writing a podcast about the interactions. And I had a toddler and four bigger kids occupying a lot of my time and thoughts. So it was easy for me to tell myself I must have misremembered something that I thought Brooke had said. And living in an online space where people's lived experiences are given more weight than they would be in the real world, I felt like it wasn't really my place to question how reasonable it would be for someone to have three serious and unrelated medical problems all at once. After the first few times talking to Brooke on John's Discord, it was obvious that there was something weird about it. At first, I chalked it up to both of them going to the same school and being from the same area, but very quickly, it became too much to chalk up to coincidence. I started trying to subtly hint that I had my doubts that they were two different people. Like, Brooke would say she was going to visit John at the hospice, and I would tell her, oh, great, send me a selfie of the two of you together. As you can guess, no selfie was ever sent. Or I would tell Brooke, why don't you give me a call and we can discuss it whenever she was upset. But she would never call. Brooke often sent photos of doorways or entrances to the hospital, her computer screen, like items in her home. Other than that one photo of her in a dress that was pretty quickly deleted, she never posted photos of herself, not even her hands. 
When she would show me photos of a sticker that she had received that I had mailed to her, she would put it on her desk. She didn't hold it. It was terribly suspicious. But like I said before, it wasn't hurting me. In fact, I was benefiting from John's need for attention, and I was keenly aware of that fact. Luis and I were pretty often having conversations about whether or not we should say something to John about our suspicions about Brooke. On the one hand, this was clearly a weird thing to do. But on the other hand, what if John was just so depressed that he felt that this was what he had to do to gain friends? I tried to regularly reassure John in no uncertain terms that we would be happy to be his friend even if he never sent us a penny and even if he were to miraculously recover. Once I even gave him that out, I said, John, you sound so much stronger lately. Maybe the docs should redo your MRI. Maybe they got it wrong. I was willing to play along with his fantasy to allow him to backpedal from it. We weren't looking at the old texts back back to back then to see how often Brooke was asking for private phone calls for John. We weren't seeing the computer thing in context of what would eventually start happening. We just thought this guy was so lonely, maybe struggling with substance abuse, clearly not sleeping. What does our faith tradition require of us in this scenario? The best we could work out was that it was our job to be kind and to love him, even if he wasn't particularly lovable. Even if he made up an alter ego. But in summer of 2021, John made it clear that Brooke wasn't just an imaginary friend. John and Brooke would have compared notes immediately and would be on the same page about something that they were angry about in an amount of time that most people can't even type out a synopsis of what had happened to make them angry. They were always perfectly in communication with each other, which makes sense if you're the same person. But when you're presenting as two separate people, you can appear to have a majority consensus when declaring that someone else is in the wrong. As time went on, Luis and I were more and more often finding ourselves on the receiving end of those we-have-to-talk-about-what-just-happened-on-stream texts. But what did we do to provoke the big incident that ended it all? The conclusion of this story. Next time. This episode of Parasocial Anxiety was written, produced, and edited by me, Katie Ruvalcaba. Cover art by Brandon Ocampo. Theme music by Cybras. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to encourage more content of this kind, please consider donating at paypal.me slash Mrs. Ruby. And send me your stories. I'd love to tell them.